0: Hey, it is a joy to see all of you, to see all of your faces, to see some familiar faces, to see some new faces. You know, we don't tell each other this enough, but I tell you this with my whole heart. I need you. I need you in my life as part of the church. And we need each other. It sometimes goes out of fa- It's always out of fashion <laughs> to say that you can't do it all on your own and that, you know, you need somebody, but, but we do. And so every time that you respond to God's call to be here, um, it is a blessing. To me, it is a blessing to those who sit around you. It is a blessing to the person that you don't even know. Um, So thank you for being faithful in that way. Um, Let's go into our scripture today. Normally when we read our scripture together in worship, I'm pretty loosey-goosey about it. You know, I tell you, oh, you can read along if you want, you can just listen if you want, you can find it in your Bible if you want. But today, I'm going to ask you all to follow along on either the screens or on the back of your order to worship while I read. And I'm asking you to do this because I'm going to be reading a paraphrase of our scripture passage for today while I ask you to follow along with the more tra- the traditional translation. And no, I'm not doing this just to keep you on your toes or to tick you off early in the morning or to make you feel confused. Those are just side benefits that I get to enjoy. Uh, but I, I'm doing this because I, I feel like very often, particularly around the Advent season or the Lenten season, the scriptures that we read every single year, it's very easy for us to read these passages as though they're sort of spiritual jargon. They they don't mean anything. We know what they mean, but we can't articulate what it means. And they were never intended to be that way. It was never intended to be this jargon or this ritual. It was intended to be a tool to help us draw closer into God's heart. So uh, I'd like for you to follow along with the language with your eyes, just with the hope that maybe as we read it in light of the paraphrase that It will bring some new life to this ancient text. We're going to start at Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. While Jesus was living in the Galilean hills, John, called the baptizer, was preaching in the desert country of Judea. His message was simple and austere, like his desert surroundings. Change your life, he said. God's kingdom is here. John and his message were authorized by Isaiah's prophecy, which said, Thunder in the desert. Prepare for God's arrival. Make the road smooth and straight. John dressed in a camel hair habit, tied at the waist by a leather strap. He lived on a diet of locusts and wild field honey. People poured out of Jerusalem, Judean, and the Jordanian countryside to hear him, see him in action. There at the Jordan River, those who came to confess their sins were baptized into a changed life. When John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes! What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes on the fire. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama, compared to him, I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your words. The ones that we understand and the ones that we don't understand. We are grateful for your presence. Here in our hearts and in the faces of those who surround us, we are grateful for your wisdom, for the way that you continue to speak to us over the centuries and the generations. We pray, God, that we will hear your truth today. In the midst of our imperfect minds, in the midst of our imperfect words, may you somehow still speak through to us, into our hearts, to our very souls and being, that we might be changed. Because of that wisdom, because of your truth, that we might know you better today than we did yesterday, that we might go out into the world as a people proclaiming that there is still good news to be had, even when everything seems to be going to pot. So we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. The season of Advent can sound like a really abrupt record scratch in the midst of our commercial Christmas season. In many ways, Advent and the commercial Christmas season are opposites. Christmas comes at the end of our calendar year, but Advent is the start of our Christian calendar. Christmas is often pitched as an opportunity to get everything that you ever wanted and at 50% off, but Advent is characterized by waiting in expectation and in hope for things not yet realized for things not yet even known. Christmas is all levels of bright, and you can see we've embraced that this year. (laughs) Whereas Advent is characterized by twilight and a soft glow of candles in the darkness. Advent is a deep purple on the horizon between that which is gone and that which is not yet here, but is still coming. Perhaps the one thing that continues to unite the commercial Christmas season and the Advent season are these four little lights here, lights for hope and peace and joy and love, which are still the desire of every nation, which are still the desire of every longing heart, religious or not, commercial or not, sparkling or not. Fortunately, the scripture passages that we read during Advent are intended to reflect on these very four things hope, peace, joy, and love. But they don't talk about these four things in the way that we might anticipate. Last week, the scripture talked about hope by talking about the end of the world. This week, the scripture speaks about peace in the same paragraphs as it condemns people for being a brood of vipers. Throughout scripture, hope is not billed as pie in the sky by and by, and peace is not billed as the placid dulling of passion and conviction, as though it's only a blanket of blandness that can eradicate the need for conflict, as though that's our only hope for peaceful living which it's not. In Scripture, hope is found in the shocking surprise of the reliable things dying away and in the new coming. And in a similar fashion, peace is found not by the mellowing of our deepest convictions, but rather by the intensification of them. So let's turn to our passage, yeah? because there's a lot going on in this today. But in the bulk of it, what we see is that John has absolutely nothing nice to say. Thank God. He's hollering at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them snakes. And then he's talking about burning things up in the fire. Important things, like their very identity as the children of Abraham. Burning up the things that they are the most proud of. That's what makes this passage so difficult for us to engage. It was difficult when it was written down, and it's difficult today. One commentator put it this way. He said, the difficulty of this passage is not in identifying what should be emphasized in the scripture, but because what is emphasized is so clear. The problem is that what is emphasized is so hard to hear and to respond to appropriately. Friends, let's make no mistake about it. What John is emphasizing here is repentance. What John is emphasizing here is a dramatic change of mind and direction. Those of you who have been around the church for a while may remember that the literal definition of repent is to turn as in to turn around, to stop the direction that we're going in, to completely alter course. And it was one of John the Baptist's favorite sermons, this repent. He loved that one. He said it over and over and over again. And it was actually the first sermon that Jesus himself preached in the book of Mark when he said, repent and believe in the good news. Repentance has always been central to the Christian message. Now, I want to tell you that whenever I think of what it means to repent, I think back to a children's sermon that I did once years ago in a previous call. The sanctuary that I was serving in was really long and narrow, and it had just one aisle right down the center. And we had especially young crowds that had come up for the children's sermon that day. It was mostly toddlers and preschoolers, maybe a kindergartner in there, here and there. So for the children's sermon, I told them the definition to repent was to turn around. And so then I told them to run down the center aisle. And then when they heard me say, repent, to turn and go in a different direction. What could go wrong? (laughs) So... I said, okay, here we go, and they all took off, and they all booked it down that center aisle as fast as their stubby little legs could take them. And then when I shouted, repent, there was a little squeal, and that tiny herd of humans turned around and then started running right back at me. <laughs> and it was the, this part of it that I will never forget, that as they ran back at me, their faces were full of delight. They were so happy to be coming back and knowing that they had fulfilled what I had asked them to do. And so we did it a couple of more times with them running down the aisle and me yelling, repent, and them coming back to me, laughing and happy. And the final time, several of the kids made it all the way back to me and they wrapped their little arms around my legs and my preaching robe swallowed them up And I held on to them to pray before we sent them to their spiritual formation class. So my friends, let me tell you right off the bat that I think that is what repentance is really like. When we think of repentance as adults, I think that we often think of shame and punishment and God waiting on the doorstep with arms crossed, sort of silent and waiting to talk until we fess up to what we've done. Anyone else have a vision like that? You had a parent like mine. Sometimes repentance feel like we had to first figure out what we've done wrong before we can apologize correctly. We know that when we come into God's presence that there's something we must need to apologize for. Let's just, you know, okay, let me figure out what it is. I remember my mom had a tone of voice when I was growing up. She would call my name from the bottom of the stairs with this tone that let me know that I was just about to apologize for something. I didn't know what I was going to apologize for, but I could tell by the way she said my name that I was about to apologize. Sometimes we think that that's what repentance is. Sometimes I think we as adults and as Christians fear the call to repentance that we see in scripture over and over again because we fear that experience of disappointment. And we fear that experience of shame. And we fear that feeling that we might have been doing something wrong that we didn't even know was wrong. But my friends, I really don't think that that's how repentance works. Because we know that the truth is that the one who's calling us to repent is calling after us with the arms wide open with robes that are ready to envelop us in an embrace. The one who calls us to repent calls us with delight and is delighted to see our smiling faces running right back into his arms, running as fast as our legs can take us, completely unconcerned with the direction that we were charging in just minutes before because we are so wholly consumed by that smiling face that welcomes us, by those open arms that embrace us. I don't believe that repentance is something for us to fear. I think that it's something for us to embrace. I think it's the actual good news of Scripture that we hear over and over and over again. It's not shame on you, fix the way you are. It's a, oh my gosh, aren't you glad you have another direction you can go in? So the question is then for me, where do we go? Once we have altered course and we've changed direction and we've gone forward in a new way, what is it that we are supposed to be doing? One commentator worded it this way, She said, repentance means to assume responsibility for the future and not to be tied to the past and to personal prerogatives. I'm just going to say that one more time. Repentance means to assume responsibility for the future and not to be tied to the past and to personal prerogatives. So we've had that moment where we've been able to turn around and with joy in our faces, run into the arms of the one who has been calling us not out of shame and condemnation, but out of joy and welcome and forgiveness. And then once we get there, the next thing that we get to do is assume responsibility for how those next few steps are going to go. I think many adults that I meet are pretty decent at severing the ties that we have to the past. Most people, not all people, this isn't a blanket statement, but most people I meet are pretty good at forgetting the things we don't want to remember. My, my husband and I call that selective hearing in some ways, right? You, you, you're pretty good at saying, oh man, that wasn't good. I'm, I'm just going to forget that that ever happened. We might not be good at forgiving for those things that we've done, but we're pretty good at forgetting. However, I think that the part of repentance that we struggle with the most is the part of assuming responsibility for the future, at remembering and accepting that the next choices that we are about to make, the next things that we are about to say, the next actions that we are about to do or not to do will shape the future. And they will shape not just our individual future, but they will shape the future of those around us. I think that if we want to be people who repent, then we need to be the people who go, who accept the love, who run into the arms of the creator who embraces us, and then who go home by another way, as those wise men did. To be able to recall and remember that from that moment, because we are loved, because we are embraced, because we are received, that so we must go forward with that intention of something else happening. As we go into this season of hope and peace and joy and love, I really think that that's where the good news of repentance is at. That if this is the world that we want to live in, then we need to accept that we have some responsibility for making it that way. If we want to live in a world that is peaceful, then we need to be a people of peace. And it just might be that rather than repentance being the thing that brings us into great discomfort and pain and turmoil, It could actually be that repentance is the thing that brings it, peace being here on earth.